Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Sherry Kennedy Brownrigg, the General Manager of Classical 90.7 FM KVNO. In today's show, Brownrigg shares that initial moment when radio first called to her and she began a lifelong vocation on the airwaves as a host behind the microphone and as a leader at a public radio station. Brownrigg also talks about the business of radio and its importance to our community, bringing joy and elevating our quality of life. It was as if radio reached out and grabbed me. It, it never let go after that. I mean, I had thought about doing a lot of other things, but from then on out, it was radio. I knew that's what I wanted to do, and so I oriented my life towards that. Omaha native Sherry Kennedy Brownrigg is one of few women who hold the title of general manager among the nation's 55 classical radio stations. Classical 90.7 FM KVNO began broadcasting in 1972 from what is now the University of Nebraska at Omaha campus, recently celebrating 50 years on air. Brownrigg has worked at radio stations in Omaha and across the country, including the role as president of Relevant Radio Network, a Christian national radio network headquartered in Green Bay, Wisconsin and Minneapolis, Minnesota, before returning to land at KVNO. Sherry Kennedy Brownrigg, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. It's so really, really, really nice to be here. I love the fact that listeners, hopefully by now, will have some familiarity with both our voices. So this, this is a pleasure to actually be across two mics from you in person. Um, I, I did want to start, though, by inviting you to get our conversation framed, as it were, to just paint a picture of your childhood and what stands out to you now as you look back on those early days of your family life and, and upbringing. Well, my childhood, I would say, is a bit of a mixed bag. I had a really idyllic childhood. I had uh, um, a mother who was so loving, a father so loving, and an older brother and sister. And in fact, we live down on Leavenworth Street, and it's fun because I get to go by that house occasionally and see where we used to live and lots of wonderful memories. But my father actually died when I was five. And so, as you can imagine, that's a pretty tough thing. He was in his late 30s, and it was a fatal heart attack. And uh, um, my mom didn't even know how to drive. You know, back then, life insurance was a bit of a luxury. And I remember her telling me that she had gotten uh, enough life insurance, basically, for the funeral and to bury him. And she had to go back to work, and she was trained as a nurse. And in fact, they had met when she was in nursing school and she had, <laughs> I love this story, she had hepatitis and she was in the hospital and he had come with a friend of his to see whoever was in the next bed. That was his girlfriend. And they were talking and all that. And so my dad looked over there and there's my mom, yellow as can be. And somehow he thought, I should meet this woman. And they fell in love. It's the ultimate cute meet, and I just, I just love that story. But they were very, very loving. And um, uh, when he died, she had to go back to work, and that was a really tough time for us. And then my mom remarried, and she, I think it was about maybe two years after he had died, she remarried my stepdad, and they were married for many, many years. He just died in 2017. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I always had shelter over my, my head, and I always had people who loved me very much. I had a, still have a very, very close family. But when something like that happens, you know, it, it take, takes a toll on you, does a number. There's, there's a psychological thing that I learned later in life that when your father leaves you at that age, you think it's your fault. And today we look at that and think, oh, of course, that's ridiculous. You know, he didn't mean to die, but somehow you think, if I had loved him more, if I had been better behaved or whatever, and it takes a lot of time to sort of undo some of that. When you were a child, how did you move through those really pivotal inflection points when 
he was here, then he wasn't, and that, as you say, some of the trauma that's associated with that. And then I would imagine there's another inflection point when your mother remarries and now you have another father figure in yes. your life. And, and these are really pivotal moments in your life as you're sort of shaping who, who you are. Yeah. I, that's such a good question, and I'm not sure if I really know the answer. Somehow you get through them, and I credit my mother, who uh, was an extraordinary individual. She just died last year, and she was she was probably the finest person I'd ever met in my life. Uh, she She just had a way about her that you knew that you were loved, even if she just met you you felt that her entire attention was on you. And I think that kind of um, upbringing, having a mother like that, insulates you a lot. Of course, as I got older, and I think even some of the time then, Stuart, I kind of knew how much she was suffering because she would cry. You know, I was only five, but you see things, you hear things, and you, when you see your mom crying, you know, that's, that's an important thing to pay attention to, and it's very distressing to you as well. And I think we, we somehow just got through it in the way that families do. But they know so much more now about how that affects kids, and so that's, that's a good thing. I don't want to lose sight, too, that you mentioned, I think, an older brother and an older sister. Yes, yeah. Uh, how, how were they responding? We all, we all responded a little bit in our own way. And um, I'm the kind of person that I think I was always, you know, well-behaved and <laughs> followed directions and things like that. <laughs> and my sister was, as the oldest, she was, you know, the caretaker. And so she had some of that role thrust upon her. And my brother, who was right in the middle, you know, he'd lost his dad in, I think, formative years that really could have helped him to have that strong father figure. Because we, we went from a dad who was very, very loving, someone who you would wait for him to come home and run into his arms, and he would hold you all night if that's what you wanted, and teach you how to play. And my stepdad um, was a little bit more removed from being able to have that kind of um, real physical affection and open affection. And so, you know, that, that does change things a little bit, but you learn pretty quickly not to expect that from him. And we had a wonderful life with him. He was a wonderful man, and he had a very, very tough childhood himself. And uh, um, I was able to help take care of him. My mother did the bulk of the care, but helped take care of him a little bit in his later life. And it was just so wonderful to be able to do that for him. Was there a particular faith context to your family when you were growing up? My biological father, who died when I was five, really um, did not have a faith. But my mother, her father, my grandfather, was a Methodist minister in Cody, Nebraska, Nenzel, you know, those areas out there, those wonderful small towns in western Nebraska. And so she had grown up in, um, in that faith and so after my father died, the three of us, my older brother and sister, we were all baptized then into the Methodist church. And so we, we started going to church then. My stepfather was Catholic. And so when my mother married him, she became Catholic. And she let us decide, you know, what we wanted to do. And we went to Methodist church for a long time, often went to Catholic church with them as well. But... Uh, but what's funny is, so they had a child, my, my brother Anthony, who is actually a priest here in the Archdiocese of Omaha. He's the only one of us who was born into the faith. My brother and sister and I all married Catholics and converted. So <laughs> I tell my, told my stepdad, of course, he's passed away, but I said, it's all your fault, Dad. You <laughs> it used to make him laugh. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about these traumas you had as a child, but, but also it sounds like your childhood was... A lot of fun as It was well. a lot of fun, yeah. What were the kinds of things as a child that seemed to either captivate your attention or perhaps draw out a little mischief in you? Wow. 
mischief. Do I have to reveal that on radio? Okay. I, th I think the statute of limitations <laughs> has passed, so I think we're good. Well, once. I, no, I won't tell those stories. But um, the things that captivated me, I was always so curious about everything. And I remember um, just being very curious about how things were made. We had this beautiful staircase in this old house and it was wooden and innately carved and I remember spending a lot of time looking at that staircase or the little uh, flowers the silver bells that grew on the side of the house and I, I used to love and you know just hold them in my hand and look at them and um, that always captivated me but uh, I was kind of a shy child, which is funny because I'm really not shy at all anymore. I'm very interested in people much more than things now, although things still have that interest. But, but back then, it was just really sort of discovering this world is really magical. I mean, the way that everything is put together is just incredible. And mischief was, well, as I grew a little older, I was always getting in trouble for talking in class. And that was just kind of the thing that happened to me all the time. I mean, I think, you know, the teachers would have, most of them, what I remember, would have a pretty good nature about it, kind of like a there she goes again, Sherry. <laughs> One teacher told me that she, I met her after I had gotten into radio, and she said, I could have predicted this. <laughs> she said, you just couldn't stop talking. <laughs> uh, so this is... Perfect then, because it's it's taking me to the question, and you shared a little bit off air with me about this. What was that first moment when you encountered radio and thought, ah, oh, this is a place that really speaks to me? Gosh, it it was nothing short of just pure magic when this happened. I I can remember it to this day because I was on a Girl Scout trip. And we were visiting Coyle, which was on 90th and Dodge at the time. And this is back in the day when they had those boss jocks. And Stuart, you remember this when they, they really deep voice and they, you know, it was just all about the voice. And we walked into this studio at 90th and Dodge and there was this really large man with an equally large voice. His back was to us, but he was sitting there at the console talking into the microphone. He was bouncing up and down. His leg was going a million miles an hour, and he was gesturing with his hands. And he was talking into this microphone. And when he turned off that mic, he turned around and gave us this the hugest smile. And he was so full of joy at what he would done what he had just done on the radio, that it was as if radio reached out and grabbed me. And I, it, it never let go after that. I mean, I had thought about doing a lot of other things, you know, being a CIA spy. That was one thing, going into nursing like my mom. Is there ever a kid, I was kind of a tomboy, but is there ever a tomboy girl who didn't dream of that? I don't know. But from then on out, it was radio. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I oriented my life towards that. And it, it was a seminal moment that I can really remember to this day, all the detail. I can remember what he had on. It's just fantastic. So how did you then chart that course into what we know has been a long radio career? But from that experience as a Girl Scout, how did you manifest the action behind the intention to be in radio? At that time, there really was not a lot out there for students who were in secondary education to be able to study audio. So I really sort of undertook the study myself. I would listen to radio stations from far and wide. As you know, the AM signal bounces around so you can catch these stations that are from all over the country places I had never been, but I really couldn't wait to get to. And I would listen to what the hosts would say, the DJs would say, how they would talk, um, how they would communicate, hear the joy in their voice and the intention in their voice, and break it down. I was doing all this as a kid, which is just, you know, really irritating if you're telling somebody else about it at the time. Just listen. 
But I was doing this and listening all the time. And when it came time to choose where I was going to school, I went around to some um, local schools. I really didn't want to go too far. You know, of course, I, I did. The big three at the time were, were Lincoln, Omaha. And then I had heard someone say, well, you know what? I'm looking at Wayne State. And I said, Wayne State, interesting. So I went to Wayne State, which is in Wayne, Nebraska, on the tour there with my mother. And the very first thing, they must have known exactly how to get to me because the very first thing they did when they heard that I was interested in communications is they sat me down in front of the microphone and recorded me. And I said, sold. <laughs> I'm, this is where I'm going to school. And I was able to get on the radio that very first semester as an as a, you know, 18-year-old freshman. And then I was able to work at the local station there. I was the first woman on the air then, which was really just hilarious. Because I, I know that uh, in Wayne, it's a farm community. Certainly, there's a, a, a big college component to it. But one of the things I, I did was I went downtown and I would, would hand out the farm report to the farmers who were at the cafes. And they all, you know, sort of pat you on the head, that kind of a thing. Oh, we just love you, sweetheart. You know, good job. And, all. and I, I really had no idea how to do the farm report, but, <laughs> but I could talk to people. And it was just so fun to learn all of those things and just to do something new. And, uh, um, you know, even taking out the garbage at night, I hated it at the radio station because you'd have to, uh, it was so dark out there, you'd have to turn your car around and turn on the lights so you could actually see where you were going. Um, but it was still something, I was eager to do anything in radio, anything. There's a quote I read somewhere that, that you gave to an interviewer and you said that your husband's favorite description of you is that Sherry never met a microphone she didn't love. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> I love this idea that at Wayne State you were committed to, to that college because they got you on air straight away. Yeah. And I'm curious in these early experiences, what did it feel like to be that person now, having the same joyful moment you saw at the microphone when you were a Girl Scout? What was it like for you now to be that person? Well, as you can imagine, it took a while for me to sort of get into the comfort zone of who am I on the air. And, um, you know, that's not always, I mean, people who are on the air are not always exactly who they are in real life. And uh, I was pretty shy in those, those early days. In fact, I, I'm trying to remember I had a, a radio name that was something like Terry St. John or something like that. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? I love that name. I That's had, such a wonderful name. I had to be mysterious. And because I think I probably was still in the process of finding out who I was, you know, as an 18-year-old. Um, this was on the air at uh, at Wayne State College. I was I was just Sherry Kennedy on the air at, at KTCH in Wayne and all the other times that I have been uh, before I got married. But, but it, uh, um, it gradually became something that I was almost doing automatically. And I'll give you an example. When I was working at Light 96, which was one of the, the big stations that I worked at here, I was the afternoon drive host. And there was a news person by the name of Kay Chris, and she's still in town. I haven't seen her for years. But she was the news person, and I was the anchor. And we had the number one show in the, in the metro and two women. And that was so unusual. And I listen back to it and I think, oh, wow, you know, that really does not sound good. But something was good about it because people listened. And I, I think that despite my not necessarily knowing exactly who I was at that time, I still had the opportunity to really convey that joy and convey something to people. And, and there's another story, if I might share, too, that this may make me cry, I'm a crier. I'm just going to put you on full full alert here, Stuart. I got a letter one day at the station at Light 96. And it was a woman, and <laughs> here I go. She wrote to me, and she said, I just want to thank you for being on the radio. I had just taken a lot of pills, and I was going to drive until I crashed. She said, I heard something in your voice. I don't know what it was, Joy something 
And she said, I drove to the hospital because I realized there was something else that I could have that. If you had it, I could have it too. <laughs> Sorry. But I really had no idea that I had that. I was just having fun. And, you know, so it's moments like that that you think, all right, well, you know, if, if I can do a little good with the gifts that I have, that's where I want to be. And that's what I hope I'm doing now. So you just shared a really powerful story about how asynchronously you know uh, you are engaging with people. But I'm just curious how you adapted and come to terms with being behind a mic, being very interested in people, but also being at some remove from the people that you're engaging yeah. with. I guess it's all it's all balance. Because in, in my role as GM, one of the things that I get to do is talk to people who are listeners. And I've always been able to do that I've always loved to just to talk to people and find out who they are and what makes them tick. And so, you know, that's that's something that is really fun for me to do because you'll have a lot of people. Oh, I've heard you on the radio. You probably get this, too. I've heard you on the radio and, you know, you acknowledge their their emotion, but immediately turn it around and find out about them. And that that changes their life. And that's what I want to do. That's what I love to do. Because, you know, when I get to the end of me pretty quickly. <laughs> but there's always so much to learn about other people and so much that I can give them just by asking them. You know, and you do this so well, Stuart. You must be really fed by, by the answers that, that you're able to get people to give to you and that they can realize um, themselves. Sometimes, you know, people talk out loud, and after they've said something, they realize something very deep about themselves. And it's wonderful to be a part of that moment, isn't it? Has there been some realizations you have had about yourself through the process of continually talking into the microphone, into um, the ecosystem of the airwaves with listeners? What, what has that process revealed to you about yourself? that I can bring what I just talked about into that asynchronous, dia asynchronous dialogue, that, you know, sort of uh, nonlinear kind of communication that we have right there, or one-way communication. Because for me, I am a true believer that you can communicate so much by your voice. You know, I can go into something really sexy right here. Now I'm being sort of facetious, so it's probably not that sexy. But it, it does, it imparts something else. And what you can do with your voice can really change someone's attitude, their understanding about something, the way that they are looking on their day. And I found out that I could do that without having to be in front of people. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to, to realize. And you had mentioned that when you are on the radio, you have to imagine that person you're talking to. It's easy because you and I are together right now across from each other. But when I'm training people, that's one of the things I get to do is train a lot of people who've never done radio before. I always tell them to find that person that makes them the person that they always love or want to be. For example, for me, it's my mother. So I often will picture talking to my mother who would, you know, she would almost literally hang on every word that you were saying. She was very interested in what you had to say. So I would, I, I talk to her. And I, when people find that person, like I found my mother, when they're on the radio, it changes everything. You know, not everybody has the same makeup that I do. But it's, it's amazing what you can do with your voice and with just audio. The listener meets you halfway. Video, I love video. There's nothing I love more than going to a movie, getting a big tub of popcorn and escaping. <laughs> you know, it's so much fun. But that's, it's more of a spoon-fed experience. And when you are listening to audio, you're meeting that communication halfway. And it's absolutely incredible 
to be able to participate in that communication in that way. Does that make some sense? Because you're, you're meeting the person on the other side and these instruments that we're talking into right now, without you talking into the microphone or me, um, they're just lifeless things, but we animate them with our souls, with who we are, and we give that as a gift to the people who listen. And I think at some level, we don't listen to the radio and say, what a gift that guy's making of himself. But we know somewhere deep inside of us that that's happening. And I think it responds to the deepest part of each other. You are right now the general manager at KVNO, which is a public radio station here in Omar that features classical music in many, many stripes. But you've had a long career before getting here. And I wonder if we might journey with you a little bit on the career you've led and the audiences you've engaged with and the kinds of content that you've been responsible either for hosting or producing or, or leading on that journey. So could you just take us on that um, career path that, sure. that, that you took? Yeah, I mean, the first half of my career was really spent in um, what they call, I don't, actually, I don't know if they still call it this, but they did at the time adult contemporary radio. At the time, Elton John, Billy Joel, Mariah Carey, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, um, so it was popular music. And it was really mostly about entertainment. And it was giving people a diversion, something fun that they could relate to, you know, that's that would that would maybe take them out of the ordinary. Um, there's only so much you can say about, you know, Madonna and popular artists and things like that. So it's really bringing different bits of life into it. And I think really, you know, the focus there, when you're in that kind of radio, uh, you're, you really have to make money. At the end of it, that's what you're doing is you are making money because you're putting out a product that advertisers like and the people they want to reach are consuming that product, so they're going to partner with you to reach those people. And so really, you're oriented towards that. And it wasn't until I got into nonprofit radio, um, when I started the Catholic radio station here, which that was a big, big change. And it became a, a whole different kind of communication, because I still believe that audiences come to radio as a form of entertainment. I mean, they don't necessarily sit down and listen to radio or audio as, I'm going to learn, you know, let's, let's get learning here. They want to be entertained, but they want to have something more in there when they're listening to um, religious radio that's not music-based or to public radio, you know, or even, even with classical, there's so much part of the music there. But it's also the little tidbits that we put in there, too, that are just interesting enough that give people context for what they're about to, to hear. So it's when I got into um, the Catholic radio station here, which is now called Spirit Catholic Radio, that, that I had a, a much deeper understanding of the nature of that communication and did it uh, quite a bit more intentionally than I had before. Did anything surprise you about different audiences, so, so far as you could assess those, evaluate those, whether through marketing types of uh, research or just encountering listeners, did anything surprise you about how listeners listen to these different stations and platforms? Yes, very much so. The one thing was how deeply people feel it. And that's true for for religious radio as well as public radio. Because there is a mission that's in there, I think that mission gets communicated. But, for example, in Catholic radio, um, there's a lot of, you know, talking about the faith, about the different points of faith. And when people learn that, there's something that happens within them if they're predisposing themselves to that kind of communication. They open themselves up, and it comes in and takes root. Whereas when you're talking about listening to pop radio— you're not really listening really super intently to a Madonna song, you know, unless you're you're in a particular time in your life where the lyrics and things like that are, you know, we all went through those 
those uh, angst-ridden youths where music was, oh, listening, you know, he broke up with me and I have to listen to this breakup song again and again. And it speaks to us in that way. But ordinarily, it just doesn't have that kind of impact. But with religious radio, people felt it so deeply. And there was such a trust that they had in us to really bring them um, the truth, you know, to to never to never vary from what was true. And so we we felt that as a, a very important uh, responsibility. And here in public radio, I feel the same way too, that we need to bring the best of classical music to people because people listen for a reason. You know, classical music for some people is going to be their first choice, but often people come to us because they get tired of all the other things in the world. And so it's a respite. And, you know, our brand promise is basically elevating life. And that's what we want to do is to take people out of the everyday life that, that has a tendency to drag us down. And it's, uh, it's an opportunity. You know, you, you can travel anywhere when you're listening to classical music. And, and um, it can be 500 years old or it can be, you know, written in 2023. And it still has that same ability to do that. So um, people really do feel it very, very deeply. And when we mispronounce names or things like that, you know, we hear about it. And so it's very important for us to take that responsibility very seriously. How did you end up then at KVNO and and why? Pure luck. I landed there and they, they just couldn't get rid of me. You know, after I left, uh, so I had, I had started the Catholic station here in town and then was hired by Relevant Radio, which was the, the religious network in Minneapolis and Green Bay, and lived, you know, kind of did the triangle, um, Green Bay, Minneapolis, Omaha for almost three years, but my husband was still here. And it just was really untenable for us. So I came back and um, I thought, well, maybe I'll try something different. And I got into marketing and I did marketing for about 15 years, and it was in the niche of religious organizations around the world. And I loved it. I got to travel all over the place, and it was so much fun, and and uh, got to do so many so many things. And I also consulted a lot with, with radio um, along the way. But towards the end of that, I became very intensely unhappy, and I just couldn't really understand why I was intensely unhappy. And um, I finally realized what it was, that I was helping these organizations with these missions. And I was falling in love with their missions in a way that they were so personal to me that when they wouldn't take my advice or they wouldn't do something that to me seemed a no-brainer. And, you know, of course, we all think we're right. But um, it was really hard for me. And I realized, you know upside the head, I need to get my own mission again. I need to be a person of mission. And so I just, I basically shut down the company and uh, um, looked around for a while. And then I saw this job because I thought, I, I don't want to go back into commercial radio. Uh, someone talked to me about, oh, you know, we could have an all-female morning team and you guys could talk about the, the sexiest uh, workmen on the roads. And I thought, oh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> That's not me. And so I saw this job that was open at KVNO. Then it was the assistant GM, the station manager. And I called my old old friend, Otis 12, and, and he said, you don't want this job. And I said, no, I think I do. And he said, uh, I'm not sure if you do because, you know, we're part of a university. There's a lot of red tape and all that. And I realized that that's something that I kind of enjoyed was unraveling red tape as well and working with people to find solutions. And so... I just knew that was my job. And so I applied for it and um, I got the job. And that was, I started January 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And so I've been there now, you know, it'll be four years coming up in January. And I have loved it. I've learned so much and I, I just really, really enjoy it. Um, there are distinctions between commercial and public radio stations. And so before we actually talk about you leading KVNO, what is the difference? Like, what is a public radio for you, and 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 how does that distinguish itself from commercial radio? 
Well, both KVNO and KIOS, as you mentioned, are both public radio stations and uh, good friends, although we're not affiliated with each other. We have different products and and there's plenty of room for us to coexist together, which I love. I, I think that's, you know, kudos to you, Omaha, for supporting both of these public radio stations. And that's a that's a central part of the definition is that they are listener supported. And they tend to be on the, well, they are on the FCC um, dial. They are 92, below 92. And so, you know, anything under there has the ability to be a public radio station. But it's um, it's very much uh, for the community. And they were created for that reason, to serve the community in a very specific way. And that particular band on the FM dial below 92 is called the Educational Band. So, you know, that's part of what our mission is. So when you're talking about commercial radio, they don't have that, that mandate to educate. Some may, but it is, um, it's really about making money. It, you know, radio, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we live in America, and, you know, that's, that's what most businesses do. They're in it to make money. People have jobs there, and they're able to pay their bills, and this is kind of what makes our our society, or at least our economy, run. And um, that's what what commercial stations really do, though, is they're focused on making that money. So they will do whatever it is that will keep you listening as long as possible. Now, that that doesn't mean that in public radio we don't want that, too, but it's, it's part of a larger mission to be part of the community. And so with that, then... You step into KVNO, you said January 2020. Uh, already with that timeline, we can see that there was one major challenge that the whole world knows about with the pandemic. <laughs> These last three plus years, what have been some of the challenges in leading a radio station, specifically you know, KVNO? Uh, but also, what are some of the opportunities that you've seen and capitalized on and, and that you see ahead? When the pandemic hit, we all know everything shut down. It was a new thing for this era. People who were living today really had never experienced something like this before. And for for our station, um, as anybody does when they, they come in, they have a lot of you know big ideas. And I was really looking forward to spending a little time just getting to know everybody. And uh, wasn't planning on some really big ideas. But I think we all thought maybe things would be shut down for a month or so. And they were shut down for a better part of a, of a year. And so at that point, you know, there, there were no classes on the campus of UNO. We were designated essential personnel because we were media. So we got to come to campus, but otherwise they would literally stop you and you could not come on campus. And so many of us continued to come. We're situated on two separate floors, which is helpful. So we could be there and be away from each other. And then a certain subset of our team was able to work at home. And so really the focus became twofold. Number one, keeping the product on the air and keeping it a quality product, but also really understanding what people were going through, our listeners, and really being there for them in what we said on the air and in the music that we played. But the second thing was was keeping my team physically and mentally healthy. That was a big, a big important thing. And I think I did the former better than the latter. You know, because I'm I'm one of those people that I'm I tend to be very adaptable to situations and I need to remember that not everybody else is. And we had, you know, some people suffered during that time. So it was, a, uh, it was a good opportunity for me to really learn because I'd been, I'd been the head of my own company for a while, but my team, um, we, we basically were all remote. You know, we didn't work in the same office together because there were a lot of people that were situated around the U.S. and, and um, you know, we were able to go wherever we needed to at that point from where we were and occasionally did get together and had a lot of, you know, Zoom meetings. But but uh, it wasn't the same kind of management that I'm doing now. And so, um, so that's, that's really how things went, you know, when I first started there. And then once we were able to get past the pandemic, 
really turning the team to look towards the future and to see, you know, where can we go? Because in that time, I know that KIOS had their 50th birthday, and so did we. We had ours last year. And it's it's really fun to to look back and say, oh, we've been, we've been, you know, all these interesting places and how the medium has changed so much and the platforms have changed. You know, when people, when we first started, the only way you could hear us was by turning on the radio. And now you can get us on the smartphone app, you know, the kvno.org. I mean, all, all sorts of different things on smart speakers. You can talk to this little box and say, do this for me. And it does it for you. I love that. <laughs> and it's, it's so fun to, to look at where we've been, but, but where everything is going is anybody's guess and trying to be that, you know, prognosticator and leading your team and helping them to, to be looking towards the future at the same time staying rooted really firmly in today so that we can continue to listen to our audience, know where they are and respond to them and, and deliver that, that incredible gift of ourselves and the music to them. That's important. So the word that's popping into my head is relevance. So we know, for example, that print media really, really has struggled in the last 10, 20 yeah. years and has had to adapt strongly and quite substantially and many print media outlets haven't survived that you've talked a little bit about adapting to the ways that radio can present itself to listeners in in different forums formats but you've also said you know the future looks different so i'm, I'm curious how you think about the radio staying relevant and especially staying relevant to the audiences that you've described so that it's it's actually enriching the quality of life as, as part of kvno's mission um so how do you think about relevance of the radio over the next, you know, decade or more? Yeah. Well, a couple of years ago, we made a, a conscious choice to rebrand ourselves as radio in a time when very few people were doing that. And and I got some pushback from some uh, other stations who said, you know, gosh, aren't, don't you want to say media? And I said, you know, here's the thing is that radio for our audience is a very personal thing. It connotes community. And instead of just turning on some audio that comes from somewhere, this comes from my community. It's, you know, it's my, it's my radio and it's my, where I live, it's my community. And so we wanted to really reinforce that. And that's worked for us really, really well. And now other stations, Portland, Oregon, just rebranded themselves as radio. So I thought, oh, yes, you know, I was the first one, a small thing to get excited about. But, um, but it's, uh, it's very important for us, I think, to be aware of the human condition when we look at this. I'll give you an example. For a while, when video came on and we were able to get it on our phones, it was such an exciting, novel thing. And everyone was like, radio is going to die and video is where it's at. Everybody, every kid wanted to do video, all these things. But you're seeing a resurgence now of people understanding the unique gifts of audio. They may not necessarily be able to articulate them and say, here's what I love about it, but they're just experiencing that themselves. And and people will tell us that they can be doing, and this has always been true, but they can be doing anything and they feel like there's a friend with them. They can be going about their day and there is that ability to to know that someone else is with them, but also going back to what I said before about the gift of the self of the person who's at the other end, if there's the intentionality of that, that makes a huge difference in someone's life. You know, I'm a firm believer that that is, um, we as humans, very few of us were meant to be completely solitary. And having a connection with someone, even if it is only through a voice is a very important thing. And people are understanding that in a world that changes so much that being able to hold on to something that is familiar and feels comforting and feels good, those times are going to be much more important in the future. The platform may change, but I'm thinking that the actual ability for us to communicate with people via audio is going to be around for a very long time. 
Phil, you spent your entire life endeavoring to connect with people. Do you feel as if you've been able to achieve that through this medium of radio and through the work that you've done? Do you feel that you are more deeply rooted in, in as you say, that liking people, liking to engage people, and, and perhaps at the same time more connected to yourself? Do, do you feel as if you've charted that course, that mission? I do, yeah. I, I'm the type of person who, if you've ever studied Clifton Strengths, you know, I have woo, which is winning over others, positivity, communication, all the really irritating traits. And there was a time in my life when I actually was not championed for having those things. And it made me seem like I wasn't very serious or professional or deep. And I'm at the point in my life now where I completely have embraced those and I love them and I use them in ways that are really all about the other person. And I think that's where I, I sort of have come full circle with it because when I knew I had those things and would use them when I was much younger, you know, they probably did come across as very immature and not not being um, a very serious kind of a person because I was always, you know, I still am this way, but the last one to leave the party, what's the next fun thing that we can do? You know, I, I just, I love to sit with people and laugh and talk. And if we're doing something great, but let's just sit and talk the whole night away. And doesn't it doesn't matter what time it is. And, and you know, I, those are the things that I really, really love. And so being able to embrace those now with myself and being okay with them, being able to channel them, makes me feel like, yes, I've, I've finally come to be that person. I feel really at home now in my skin, really at home in my skin on the radio too, talking to my mom. <laughs> and by virtue of talking to my mom, I'm talking to everyone out there as well. And, you know, sharing some of that joy that I feel inside with them. You shared that you were the first female host on air at Wayne State College. In Wayne, Nebraska. In Wayne, Nebraska. Sorry. And and then you said, I think, that you were um, the first female anchor to... Uh, for, for a drive time show uh, that, that was the number one drive time, number one show in You Omaha. know, I, I think maybe Brandy Summer has that distinction. Okay. Because she was on maybe an afternoon, so somebody, somebody listening will remember this, either afternoons or the evening. But I wasn't the, necessarily the first female, but the first female team, two females together. So building on that, and, and, and obviously just correcting myself a little bit, but clearly at the vanguard, of, of being you know a woman in radio as it were and now you are one of the few female leaders at a classical radio station and and I'm articulating this while thinking it shouldn't matter that I am noting this but it does seem to matter in our modern times still and I wonder if that fact does matter to you, and, and if so, how it matters to you that you are one of the few female general managers at a classical radio station. Hmm. I'd have to be honest and say I've never thought about that before. I know that when, when I got the appointment, it was brought up to me that that was the case, and I said, oh, really? That's really sad. <laughs> um, but, gosh... I'm thinking out loud right now. This is really hard to put into words. I've always just been who I am. And I've never been the kind of person who, because, you know, I, I remember when I was younger and getting more professional and rising up the ranks, you know, I would read lots of books, Success for Women, all these things, the articles, and try to emulate them. And, oh, you have to dress, you know, like a man and all these things. But I never really felt like that that worked for me very well. And so I felt that um, the way that I could lead people the best was by helping them become successful and focusing on them. 
and really celebrating these gifts that I have and the ability to use them with other people and, and celebrating their gifts, recognizing the gifts that they have and being, being mindful of the other person and their place in the world and their place. You know, we, we have a very flat organization. I'm the GM, but I will sit down in a heartbeat with anybody who's anyone in the company and, you know, let's go to lunch, let's talk, let's brainstorm. I, to me, you know, my door is always open unless I'm on a Zoom call, I'll irritate other people. But um, people, I want people to be able to stop in my office and know that they will be heard and that they will be recognized for their humanity and their gift right then and there. That's really important to me. Because, you know, for me, that wasn't always the case. And I'm sure a lot of it was my own fault. I should have, you know, realized that that uh, um, there's a time and place to have fun and maybe channeled my gifts at an earlier age. But I don't really care at this point. You know, I'm here now. And the older I get, the more other people are so important to me. And the connections that I have, even if it's, for five minutes, you know, that you're at the checkout stand, that's a connection that can be incredibly valuable to the other person, to you. And I just don't want to shortchange it. You talked about how being one side of the mic as a host, you are in many ways giving of yourself, making a gift of yourself to the listenership. And I'm wondering as you look at your life in radio, behind the microphone, leading radio organizations. What has radio given to you? It's given me the ability to express myself to an, a large group of people at once. And maybe express myself is not the right phrase because we live in an age where it's, you know, everyone feels, oh, I need to express myself. I don't really think that I need to express myself. What I need to do is to bring joy to someone else. And it has given me the ability to do that, to bring joy to people in a really unique way. If I can make your day just a little bit better, oh, my day's perfect. <laughs> that's really, that's really what I need. My guest today has been Sherry Kennedy Brownrigg, the general manager of Classical 90.7 FM, KVNO. Sherry, this has just been a delight. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Stuart, the pleasure is all mine. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.